What's the crack? And welcome back to another edition of the Irish Voice podcast. Another rendition of Family Therapy. Jackie Maggs here. Hello, everyone. I suppose you're buzzing after that Brentford game. Absolutely. You almost the one thing I th- when I seen the team sheet is uh, that you didn't think that Harry Maguire would get a game, and he yeah. actually got slotted in. And do you know what? I feel like an oracle for Scott McTominay is concerned. Yeah. Do you know what? Coincidental. It's funny. It's. Do you know what it reminded me of? When I seen it, and when you first said it, I thought, no, you're off your rocker, not a chance. I can't see Scott McTominay fitting in as a 10 in the United team. And the more you talked about it, I thought, I think it was trying to be nice at that point. It was like, no, what, mm. maybe. It, it was very reminiscent of Marwan Fellaini. We couldn't figure out what Fellaini was or where he fitted in the team. And everyone said Fellaini's one purpose there is to be a figurehead when you need it. It's yeah, the, the target. The yoke in the box. Yeah. Yeah. The big guy. Big guy. But Scott McTominay, can, he has that in his locker. He can yeah. score goals like that. Now his first goal was the way he took it down, the way he turned. That's that's striker's instinct. He really does have those instincts when it comes to being in front of goal. But I think you mentioned this in the last one that Scott started off as a striker. Yeah. He looks more useful as a striker than a midfielder. We could have saved an awful lot of headache and heartache if we had to let Scott do the the Voight Veghurst role. Because McTominay would have the chasing down yoke thing to him. I mean, Scott has a brilliant attitude. He has he's man united to the core and he has likable attributes. It's just that he's deployed as a midfielder who does not have the passing skills to play in midfield, nor the tackling or defensive abilities to hold midfield. But then you called him as a ten. I thought no, not a chance. And he does what he does against Brantford. Yeah, but why there's a couple of reasons I um I went with that. He plays in that position for Scotland at times. He does. He also came through the youth as a striker. And then he had the growth spurt. And then they decided because of his height and because of his physical attributes, I he'd be a great defensive midfielder. But is he going to be happy being the... I don't know, the Super tactical sub. tactical nuke that gets fired on in the last 15 minutes if you're looking for those situations. Is Scott McTominay going to be happy enough to not start games but come on as option? Because I know, and again, if we bring it back to the Fellaini situation, he can be hit that and eventually went to China, took the money move and left football behind. I, I think it's different where Fellaini's concerned because Fellaini was, he became that scapegoat hate figure that Moyes brought in. And I think Scott won't be in that same bracket because Scott has come up through. He's got an awful lot of critics at United, but I think that... Maybe I'm one of them. Everybody, everybody. Because he's been deployed wrongly in that team. And then he's been roped in with the Fred, the McFred. Yeah, thing, yeah, McF- and it was a disaster. It was, and it, it was like having um, uh, nine outfield players because two players were filling one role. Yeah. And he was roped in that. But if you can if you can use Scott McTominay and the way that football has become, especially all those stupid international matches and the, the workload that they have now, Scott McTominay, I think, would be because he settled in the North East. He came through the academy. He he gets Man United. Yeah. But if you can assure Scott McTominay, look, you're not going to be starting every match, but you will be deployed heavily throughout the season. And you, you've seen that he's still being selected for Scotland. A bit like the Harry Maguire scenario. 
Yeah, well, I think Scott definitely gets a place in that Scotland team because Scotland don't have anyone, I think, better to replace him, especially in the role that he does. Harry gets his place in the England team, even though many who are listening to this are going to start saying there's better players that play for England, but Southgate loves him. Maguire didn't do anything wrong against Bradford. I thought he was very, very good. And Maguire I tell fits you, the system. I tell you who I'll be able to blame on again. Again, shortly got through and shouldn't have had that shot on the goal. That's fair enough. But what is Andre Onana doing at the minute? Game on game on game. It's the same on repeat. He can't save the ball. The basics of goalkeeping are just not there with that lad. And if they're not there, he needs to be on the bench to give Bayender a chance. Bayender started for Fenerbahce, who were a Europa League team. It's not like he's a diminished older goalkeeper in the same bracket as Tom Heaton. No disrespect to Tom Heaton, but Bayender has to murder start, especially when the first team goalkeeper is as poor as he is. I agree with you, but the Fenerbahce fan base have said you you are going to have to be very, very patient with him. He's a confidence player and if he has a bad game, that's half the season gone for you because he did the same in Fenerbahce and I know where you're coming from with Onana, but Onana isn't playing the same system that he played with Inter. And Onana throw criticism at him, whatever, but he is picked for the Ballon d'Or team. Andrew Onana has the confidence of Slatan Ibrahimovic. I watched a reel of YouTube shorts, and when he signed for Manchester, it was sent even more TikTok videos and YouTube shorts of his king personality and his lion-like mentality and all of these brilliant things, and he can't save the ball. But he's like a shadow of himself. You can see that he's not high in confidence. Did Inter Milan protect him? I think so, not so much protected him, but it suited. he suited that system. He did. They played higher played up the pitch, it, yes. but also when teams were getting onto them, they were more structured in the midfield. They had four at the back, five in midfield at times. They flood, yeah, they defended brilliantly, very deep, very yeah. compact. Now he's come to United, albeit he's facing more pressure and more shots than he probably should have, but he's failing. He's failing miserably. He looks awful. I, I agree with you, but I think that you have to put, even though our, we haven't had any success in the last decade, not real meaningful success, Man United is a totally different beast of a football club. There is way too high expectation on players, way too high expectation from the fan base. It is a juggernaut of a team compared to other teams. You you take players who came from who went through the Ajax Academy, played for Ajax, won everything in, in Holland and think they can make that step up and they can't. Donny Van de Beek. You know, so it's, I think it's a whole, that, that whole adjustment to that big commercial super team. Just to circle back on Scott, I heard immediately after the Brentford game, right, on TalkSport, Danny Murphy came out and said, he said, what more does this lad have to do to start for Manchester United? What more does he have to do to prove that he's a starting player for Manchester United? And I instantly thought, what the fuck are you talking about? Danny Murphy's full of shit. End of. I like him as a pundit. No. But there's just certain stances he takes, especially when it comes to scenarios like this, and you're like, you of all people who have played the game should know the two goals in the final few minutes of a dramatic game does not give you the starting status in any team. You know what I mean? Like, but you can't ignore what Scott McTominay cannot do and play him as what? Are you going to play him as the starting 10? Are you going to sacrifice Bruno Fernandes or Mason Mount to have a Scott McTominay start? Not happening. No, you're it not. It's definitely not happening. And that's where 
You cannot put Scott McTominay in the Casemiro role. You cannot put him in the Amorat role. He cannot do that. And I, I would argue when the game was ebbing and flowing and Brentford were getting a bit of openness in midfield and able to exploit the frailties of Manchester in midfield and they were making runs to the middle, that's where you would have seen the worst of Scott McTominay. But what you've seen was the purity of that man's desire and ambition to score. And that's all it was. But it cannot, fans, people cannot take that and think, OK, we've got a player now, Scott McTominay should be starting, let's get Scott the Dean. That's, that's not real. No, and Danny, Danny Murphy runs with the narrative. He always has done. I would take the hard line that Scott should not start. But if the lad is willing to do what he did in the Brentford game, more power to him, and I think he's a brilliant option. But you made a good point there on... I'm going to bring this back to real life experience here. So I've been moving house for the past week and a bit, right? No time for a podcast, barely time for anything else. It's stressful. Very. It really is. Moving all your stuff, packing. I'm saying it's stressful. Sorry, I've never moved ever since. That's one of the reasons I haven't done it. It's stress. Packing all your stuff up, find a way to get it moved. Even though I only came, like, for anyone listening to this that's not from Northern Ireland, where I came from in Bambridge, the Newry is a 20 minute car journey. But to pack all your stuff up and get it moved from position A to position B was stressful. Then unpack it all at position B and get them all moved in. Trying to figure it all out. Trying to figure it all out. You know what I mean? All those things that went to. Doing that and then talking about football and you mentioning daily blend stuff coming in from my axe, I don't think that football fans apply reality to them on a human level and give some players the time that it actually takes to settle in, get readjusted in a brand new country with a brand new language and a brand new culture and then try and find yourself in the hardest league in the world. I agree with you because I have never, I have been here, I'm going to stay here. I'd yeah. be feet first out of here. I know that. I'm not moving. But I remember when I went down to the nursing in the 80s. I was only 18 at the time. After two months, I hated it. But I absolutely... I was coming home after two months. And it just took a while. To, and then I, there was a stage and then I didn't come home in the days off. Because I adjusted. I, I met friends. I got used to my environment down there. Yeah. So you're right. They don't... It's all to do with... Success and he should be on paper this exactly yeah. magic per this magic player that we've brought in to do it all and to settle very fast. We're of the FIFA generation now. Yeah. You sign a player in the summer and if he doesn't work out by January, you sell him and you yeah. buy another one. And that's the expectation. And I talk to some friends of mine who are really knowledgeable of football and then they fall into that pitfall trap. If a player hasn't succeeded in the first three months, they're a dud. And they get labelled as a dud, and it's very hard for them to shake the dud status. And there's no reality applied to the likes of... Now, Anthony spent an entire year, he's just gone through the experience he's coming through. I don't think the lad has any excuses anymore. He really has to turn it on after this international break. But very hard for a Portuguese-speaking lad to upset and travel across to Europe, land in Holland, figure himself out in the Dutch Eredivisie, spend the time that he did perfecting his game in the Dutch Eredivisie, then take that move to Manchester United and for everything to go right straight away. Now, I don't think he's in the same scenario as me. I seriously doubt that Anthony has to lend favours from friends and get vans and all these here different things to get yourself moved. <laughs> he doesn't know. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot more manual labour. He has people it. to do it for him. He has people to do it for him. But still, all in all, there's a very human element to try and something for the first time that you've never done before. But I think it's the high expectation on players that come yeah. and play for United. The... The, what would it, what would Anthony was expected to be a star when he came through the gate. We had seen the next Ronaldinho, and that's how it felt. The unreasonable expectation. Yeah. And even I at times get caught up in it. You you get sent 
and it's just a modern generation fan probably didn't exist for yourself you get sent the YouTube highlight videos and you watch very small three minute compiled clips mm. of a man that has played 30 games 30 90 minute games in a season but the three minute clip that you watch looks amazing so for those small snippets I'm expecting 90 minutes of this that I've seen in three minutes of an entire season and when I don't get it as a fan I feel disappointed well I hope you don't think I'm insulting you or your generation. You probably are. Yeah, probably. But do right? it anyway. Yes, there's such a flip-flop generation. Someone yeah. will have a bad game. He's a yoke. He needs sold. Someone will have a good... Oh, he's fantastic. You know, he needs to play more. He needs to, you know, he needs to be a first-teamer. And you are such a flip-flop generation. You just have... You just want instant gratification. Yeah. And you just want it consistently. It doesn't But is that a demand of the modern game? Do they owe us that instant gratification for the amount of money that they spend and what we watch from the Man Cities and Liverpools of the world? Are we not entitled to a bit of that as Manchester? We're entitled to be entertained. We are entitled to be entertained. And that's what di- that is what has disappointed me with Man United over the seasons. The football is horrendous to watch it. I'm sitting watching a football match and I'm doing something else. Yes, I've been there. Yeah. yeah instead of just sitting and analysing the game. But... After a while, it's this triangle of play that's going nowhere. And you know it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And this slow, meticulous plodding through the midfield. And then you watch City. And I hate to say it, Liverpool. And you're going, why can't we do that? We have, we have paid an absolute fortune. Fortune for players that are supposed to be elite. And we've paid with, with a manager now that has to play. He's not playing his own system because he still hasn't got the players who can't or won't play that system. Is it can't or is it won't? I think it's a bit of both. Who can't? Who can't? Um, no, we're going to argue over this one. 110. I'll tell you my first one straight out of the gate. This is my boiling hot point on Manchester United. Bruno Fernandes can't play Ten Hag's system. I sort of agree with you there. You don't think Rashford can play Ten Hag's system? You don't think Rashford can play Ten Hag's system? I don't think because I think we said in the last podcast, right, that Rashford is a counter-attacking footballer. To a point. But I watched his goal for England last night and he was very proactive. But he has better people than what he's getting at Manchester United given him the ball. You can't take the brilliance of Jude Bellingham and diminish it in his role in Mark Rashford goal. It was absolutely brilliant. And he's not getting that at the minute from Mount Amrabat and Casemiro. But what I'm saying is... It was... Yes, it was quick from England, and yes, you could argue there was an error of counter-attacking about it because Bellingham burst. Yeah, it was. But he's a, I would say he's not a counter-attacking foot. He's a front-foot footballer. If you look at the space that Rashford had last night for the goal, don't get me wrong, it was a really, really good goal. It really was, and he took it so well. And there was a pat- it wasn't just run straight at the goal. He, there, there was skill and there was technicality invo- involved in that goal. But you look at the space that he had to run into, and that's what Rashford needs. That slow build-up that Ten Hag wants to employ that he used in the Ajax team will not suit Marcus Rashford. I think that's why Marcus Rashford is getting so frustrated during football matches because the ball isn't played over the top. The ball isn't played to him quick enough first when he has got space. And then the space is closed down too quick because it takes an ages for it to get to him. But Ten Hag took his Ajax team as far as they did in Champions League by counter-attacking. Um... I've looked at some of the, match, some of the matches at, um, of Ten Hag when he was at Ajax and he was really adaptable in some matches. Yeah. He's not doing that so much at United. He's not, but there were varying patterns of play in that Eric Ten Hag team. I wouldn't say that he was just a possession-based manager because when he had up it against Real Madrid and that, they caught Madrid cold because the ball came so quickly 
from the centre-backs into the midfield. Matthijs De Ligt, Frankie de Jong, spread out wide, catching the Real Madrid team out because they could break in an instant. But then it's coming to Manchester United and I think it has to start with the centre-backs. And we spoke about this in the last one. There's no point going over it consistently. But it's a valid point. The centre-backs at the minute are not good enough to play that sort of football. They're not. The midfield has no chemistry and no cohesion. I'm kind of buoyed away with for this game coming in Sheffield United because it's Sheffield United we should hammer them. But also the fact that Mount and Amrabat missed their international duty and have been a bit carrying them together. Because I think the one thing they'd lack... How many of us all cheat ourselves up? I'm sure loads of people actually agreed with me when I was turning around and saying, I can't wait to see and You were saying it too. can't wait to see Amrabat with Mount and Casemiro. It was shit. Yeah. It was nothing short of shit. I think it was the uh, Amrabat-Casemiro partnership that I wanted to see. But then again, partnerships have to develop. You know, there has to be a certain amount of chemistry there, you know, for them to develop. And only a, a number of games expedite that. There was a brilliant Jose Mourinho clip during the week that it was sent and it's when he went off and won one of the reporters and he said about Kevin De Bruyne, he was talking about, he was a Manchester United at the time, he said Kevin De Bruyne, Sergio Aguero, Silva and he rhymed off the players and he says they were not players bought for the moment, they were bought for the future. Other players around them took them to the standard that they are now. That's heritage. That is football and heritage. He was saying, in other words, Man City brought those players in, brought them into the football club with a three-year vision that in three years, when that team clicks, frighten. Mm. It could rule football. At Manchester United, if you look at it, our midfield trio, they're two new boys and a lad that we had for one year. A lad who had to get used to the games of Christian Eriksen and Bruno Fernandes playing as the 10. And now he's in a game system that has Amrabat beside him and Mount ahead of him. So he's learning all over again as well. Casemiro may as well be a new saying. It's three new players in the midfield. It's a whole new midfield. It's going to stumble and it's going to fall. It's going to look shit. Yeah, it just hasn't clicked. But I think instead of calling Casemiro out and saying, oh, he's lost the legs or picking holes, you're going to have to persevere. They will only click if they play. And if they play and it's poor, I think you're going to suffer. Who else do you play? Scott. No. <laughs> Ooh. the hero the Brentford hero do you know what I mean it's um, and then you've Anthony who's arguably the starter right and the right or Bruno Fernandes now Bruno Fernandes is settled in that team right but then you take the layer again your 10 is Mason Mount and your striker is Rasmus Hoyland Mount hasn't played with Bruno Bruno hasn't played with Hoyland Hoyland hasn't played with Mount yeah. so that's right and there on that right hand quadrant never played together the 3-0 in midfield the midfield triangle has never played together then Marcus Rashford is out there and the only one that he's played with is Mason Mount on international duty. Fleetingly. Oh, Fleetingly is Fleetingly. right. Fleetingly. Yeah. Behind them is whoever is going to play at left back. That's a conundrum. Behind them, Bruno Fernandes, Hoyland, Mount, is the conundrum at right back. Is it going to be Dallow this week? Is one Bissaka fit? Are we going to play Lindelof there? It's never changing rotating team. So... There's what no I'm saying is I understand your point. There's no consistency no. and no... There's no way of breeding consistency or chemistry in that team at the minute because who the fuck knows who plays week on week see this is it and with injuries and loss of form that all clubs go through but our injury crisis is unprecedented at the minute and it's no, there's no point in saying oh there's Man United fans crying again it's not that it's that that's why Andrea Onana I think has taken a long long time to settle because the central defenders 
are not playing together every week or every match. That. But a strong arm in those types of situations is the basics of goalkeeping. It would be okay. Oh yeah, the Royal established. He can't save. He can't. But that's not his forte. Jesus, saying that for a goalkeeper, like. I mean, but it's and if you watched him play for Inter Milan, he was like he was like an outfield player. I think that a lot of a lot of the players, a lot of his players, right, were saying it's the last resort for him to use his hands, which is ridiculous for a that's keeper. That's madness. But that's if you watch it. Andrew has waltzed into a Ballon d'Or as a goalkeeper on his passing ability. Yeah. What? <laughs> If there ever was a, a more defining moment for football in 2023, it's a goalkeeper who's defining things just, that he can stand and say, yeah. I can pass the wall. Well, it's a modern way. The modern way is playing out from the back, right? They're, he's a modern goalkeeper who doesn't use his hands. That's fucking madness. <laughs> even you're laughing. You can't even take your own I'm statement seriously. Yeah. yeah, that has to be sarcasm. He can well, pass a ball, though, cannot be the constant defence of Andre Onana. He has to get better at saving the ball. And until he does, I want him dropped for by Ender. And I will stand by that stance. I do not think that Andrew Onana deserves to be on the pitch for Manchester United. He's not very confident um, in his shot stopping. He's a goalkeeper. But he can't sit Right. When I say he, he can't, can't save, save, can't save when the I ball. When I say he can't save He can pass, ball, though. He can pass. Very, very, yeah. But he can tip it over the bar. He can tip it around the post. But if you look at him... When he goes down to collect the ball, he cannot. He, he pushes it out into a dangerous area. He can't grab. He can't hold on to the ball. I agree with you. So drop him. Drop him now. I get him bigger gloves. You can't stand by. Ten Hag's arrogance could be his undoing here. Onana needs to spend time adjusting to English football as the backup goalkeeper. Mm. And as much as I hate to admit it, keeping De Gea on for another year is starting to look like the best option. To have brought Andrew Onana in and let Andrew Onana compete for his place alongside David De Gea. Kind of the same as what Arsenal are doing with Ramsdale and Rea. Yeah, but now, that... I don't agree with this swapping goalkeeper crap no. as a substitute. I know they but made I think the point Rea's that... going to be Arsenal's number one. You think so? Yeah, I think. But I, think I think Ramsdale's that... a better keeper. Ramsdale had. He didn't have a calamitous year, but he didn't have a great season. There were some games that he was culpable for. The... D- defeats and draws. Do you not think Ray is looking a bit shaky now that he's at Arsenal? Absolutely. It's, see, there you go again. Rams, that was Ramsdale's breakout season for yeah, me. But there's that step up again. Yeah. you're going to a big club, right, that you've smashed it at Brentford, you've smashed it at Brighton, you know, you can't... Now, now you think... You, you look at McAllister at Liverpool at the minute. Yeah, it's not clicking. No. And, like, he was... We were so disappointed that we didn't get... Alex McAllister but Liverpool got yeah, it's not working and out it's not that working lad. out no I think it's he's a 10 step up that expectation from that big club yep. from that fan base and again a different style of play absolutely Brighton played with a 10 albeit at times an inverted 10 but they would bring um, Lalana or Pascal Gross in the midfield to play with you know Quisito and allow Alexis McAllister to play higher of the bit and that suited him now you're bringing him into a team where um, he has Sabalase and Sabalase is trying to operate... I'm murdering the pronunciation of that. That's the best thing to do. Sabalase is operating in the same space as McAllister wants to get into and it doesn't work. And to lead it back to Manchester United, I think that's happening with Bruno Fernandes and Mason Mount. I don't think Mount and Fernandes can exist in the same system. They're I'm not saying it. They're the same player who want to play the same position. Yeah. And to shoehorn both in, which you said on the last one, you have to sacrifice a right winger. I'm not for it. Yeah, but if to shoehorn them both in, you either stick either or out in the right, which isn't ideal for me. So, no. 
Did you see the Facundo Palestri played 80 something minutes for Uruguay? Bielsa loves him, raves about him. Now he didn't get the assist or the goal that would make his performance special or whatever, but apparently he played very, very well. See, this is where, if I was a manager, he paid an awful lot of money for Anthony and he believes in Anthony, I would say. He He's does. a young player, right? And hopefully, we're all hoping he comes good. But there is your right-sided forward. For Palestri to sit on the bench if you're going to take Anthony off. Instead of shifting Bruno Fernandes, right? We always say it in the summertime. We'd love like for like. And we'd love two players for the same position. Mm-hmm. Two players of equal or slightly lesser, you know, capabilities and whatever. But he's not doing that. Palestri still sat on the bench. And to me, he's much better on the right side than Bruno Fernandes. I hit Bruno Fernandes out on that right side. I'm not a fan of it either. I don't think we have seen... Now, we're all raving about Amrabat in left-back. And I think Amrabat did a job there. Yeah. Just then he moved into midfield against Brentford and he did not look as solid as he had. He was giving away silly fouls and he was struggling to, to make anything happen. Really. He was tidy, but uninspirational. It was just think, tidy for the sake of being tidy. Do you not think the pace of the Premier League catches a lot a lot of players out that are coming from different leagues? 110. But what I'm going to ask you is, would you drop Amrabat to play Mount, Casemiro and Bruno in the middle? See, I don't Or know. would you drop Mount? Or would you drop Casemiro? Who would be your midfield three? Depend on who we're playing. Depend on the opposition. Man City. No, definitely. Um, Amrabat and Casemiro have to play with either Mount or Bruno Fernandes. Either or. Yeah, but that's what says who you drop. Mount. Yeah. Now, I was a champion of Mount when Mount signed. I thought Mount would add energy into the midfield. I thought his ball carrying abilities would be something that we have sorely missed quite a long time. But then Amrabat came in and I've seen the frailties of Casemiro trying to hold midfield on his own. And I'm thinking that Amrabat would be a perfect partner for him. But if Amrabat is the perfect partner to Casemiro and it's not Mason Mount and Bruno Fernandes is already in the team, why on earth did we sign Mount in the first place? I have no idea. Do you know what I mean? Like, And a lot of the fan base have no idea. Was he convinced that Cas could hold midfield on his own and it's not coming to fruition? I mean, Casemiro did a really good job last year with Christian Eriksen in that team. It looked better, actually, with Eriksen. But I really don't like Christian Eriksen in that midfield duo. I don't think Christian Eriksen is another 10. So United have Bruno, Mount, Mabry and Eriksen, who I'd argue are four 10s. But out of necessity, we're at times playing one deeper in midfield. When it should only be Casemiro and, and Amrabat. Do you for think me, he brought him. Mount in to do the Frankie de Jong role? Possibly. But if he did, it's a mistake. Yeah. But see, there again... You're but have we seen enough of Mount to say that's a mistake, actually? That's pretty harsh. Of me to say. See, because Mount, I can't Mount, give this big waxed lyrical story about players coming in and moving houses and coming into a team and then ditch the lad has played three times for us. Not only that, but he came in injured. Yeah. No pre-season. So, I think it is a mistake. If he's bought him to be Frankie de Jong, it's a mistake. If he's bought him to hold midfield, I haven't seen enough of him to see I, where he fits. Mason Mount can't hold midfield. Not as a defensive midfielder, no. beside a defensive he's midfielder. He's great possibly. energy. He's a good engine and a mason mount. You know, he can get up and down the pitch. But I don't think, this is my personal opinion, he's not up to speed yet. Yeah, I don't think he is. I mean, it just made the point, right? Casemiro and Eriksen were decent last year. They were good last year. You know, they, they looked really solid in parts. At the start, it looked like disaster. Mm. But then it sort of gelled. There was a bit of chemistry and it came together and they were able to, they understood each other. Now, Mount, to me, is an upgrade on everything that Ericsson does. 
he has more energy, he's better running with the ball, he should protect Casemiro more because he's more of a, a presence in running in the round. But then you've had Amrabat come into the team, so Mike's playing as the 10. I suppose my question, what is Ten Hag's plan? Like, I can't work out what he wants. I don't even think he knows at this point what he wants to do. I think he has this collection of players that in his second season he's still trying to figure out. Well, you look at the end of last season and Casemiro looked gassed. He did. The Boston. last month he looked gassed. So I think it's horses for courses that you play the like of Amrabat and Casemiro together in a particular match, say against City, say against Liverpool are going to come at you. It's, you don't want to be overrun in that midfield. So they're going to, they're, they're going to be more defensive than yeah. offensive. Yeah, right? I get that. And then you have Mount to come in and uh, play with either Amrabat or Casemiro. It's, I, I think Amrabat was brought in t- as Casemiro's relief, that he's not playing twice a week. That Eriksen's not playing twice a week. I think that's why he was brought in. But then, to speak to that, why are they all on the pitch together at the minute? Because I don't think he's any alternative with the injuries. Any alternatives to the system that he played? So he, he went for Casemiro and Amrabat to hold. He had Mount as the 10 and he had Bruno Fernandes out in the right-hand side, right? Now you've just made the point that it's horses for courses. He can play Casemiro and Mount against lesser teams. He can play Casemiro and Amrabat against the bigger teams. But when he had the choices of playing a right winger, so his right wingers available to him on the bench, fully fit, were Facundo, Palestri and Anthony. Against Brentford, he decided to play Bruno off the right, Mount as the 10, yeah. Amrabat and Cass. Now by every definition, what you're saying is he made a mistake. That for me is very frustrating. I would go on worse no, than that. I wouldn't say it's a frustration, I'd say it's a mistake. It's, yeah. yeah and I called, for, I called for it in the last one on the podcast. But the more I see it, the more it just doesn't work. His selections at times are baffling. They really are head scratchers. They really are. But Apart I from Harry Maguire. A, a room full of nursery children, you're trying to keep them all placated. Yeah. That, you know, that they all can go to the sandpit at the same time. That doesn't work. That, that's a really bad analogy, I know. No, but I certainly you know get what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, you have to sort of separate them and, you know, that's not your turn and this is your turn and blah, blah. But he's trying to shoehorn in. He brought in Mount. He brought in Anthony. He brought in... Like, at the start, he wasn't afraid to drop players. I don't no, know what's wasn't. going on. He wasn't afraid to drop people. No. And now he's... Bruno Fernandes can't play as a number 10. He's, he's out... In the, excuse me. He's out in the right. To the detriment of the team, in my opinion. But see, this is, what, this is what's getting me. And this is why he said about Bruno Fernandes, right? If that was the case, if he's trying to shoehorn players in, why is Fernandes going out on the right and Mount playing as the 10? Because that's the only reason he can get them to on the... On but why is it not vice versa? Why is Bruno not in the middle where he plays, where he is the established captain of Manchester as the 10? Why is he not keeping his position? Why is his position being displaced by Mason Mount? I don't know. Is Mason Mount... Has he played on the right for Chelsea? No clue. He's a midfielder. Yeah, see, there you go then. So you're asking if Juan Bissaka can I play right wing. I think Bruno Fernandes is more versatile than Mount. I think Bruno Fernandes has played on the right sometimes for Portugal. He has. He played in um, on the right side of a midfield three for Portugal there over the international break. And he was very, very good. Very good. He's a very technically well. adept footballer. He can play in a lot of positions, apart from right wing. Because when you look at him in Portugal and you're saying oh, yes... Sorry to interrupt, Rory. Apart from our right wing. But he doesn't play on the right wing for Portugal. He plays as a right side of a midfield three. If you had Casemiro behind him and Mason Mount, that would be it. But see, this is... 
You don't need, and it's traditional United, and we play with wingers and all this. Out. In the modern, well, I'm not even going to say in the modern game, it's some teams, right, play the width with the fullbacks. You look, I think, Marcus Rashford's not a winger. Bruno Fernandes isn't a winger. We said this in the last one, he's almost being that tactically astute that he's confusing himself and the players. United are playing some weird half-breed, unforeseen diamond midfield that has a left winger who's acting as a forward and a forward who needs to stay up front and poach. Our right winger comes in and tucks as a second 10. Our 10 comes further down the pitch whenever we don't. It's just, it's like a Frankenstein project of nonsense at the minute. And if it doesn't work against Brentford, he's not going to struggle with it against Sheffield United. But God help United when they come up against a city. You know, one of those big teams at Liverpool. God forbid at the minute. Liverpool's the next big one, isn't it? Is it? I think so. I think Liverpool. Let me just get the fixture list out. I thought it was City. Well, either or, at the minute, I don't trust United against it. It is City, actually. United plays City on the 29th of October, and then they play Newcastle. Both games are at home, but they play City after playing Copenhagen midweek. So it's uh, not this weekend, but next weekend. Now would be a good time to meet City. City haven't been firing in all the cinders. I I know. (sighs) But Kevin De Bruyne's still out. What do you call him? Gundogan's left. They haven't been... They were unlucky in that Arsenal match with that deflection. They were. They were. They were Arsenal did put it up to them. I was impressed. Mm. But um, no, maybe now would be a good time to meet City. I mean, the Brentford game is three points. I think to close it off on a positive note, it was three points. I think it was a brilliant way to win it. It definitely gave everybody a bit of a boost. I was out of my chair at the end. I thought, yes, brilliant. I was so happy for Scott McTominay, even though I think he has severe limitations. But in the heat of the moment, I thought, brilliant. That's such a boost for that team going into the international break and I think a lot of our lads have played really well there was mumbles and grumbles and bullshit clickbaiting that Casimir was injured and then he started last oh, he night he started last night for prison yeah. yeah just he took a knock it was um, they were oh, concerned about his ankle yeah. it was just it was, but that's all it was it was a knock it was an, an, an impact injury okay, it is what it is but feeding in to oh is Hyland injured I'm not sure. He did. He's another one that took a knock last night. He didn't take a knock. He took a knee in the back, an intentional knee in the back. Yeah. So I'm not sure. We'll have to wait for Arkton Hags presser on Friday, and then we'll be back to analyse that and talk about the Sheffield United game. But Brentford analysis may be a bit late, but leading into the main news, the big story, Jimmy Jimmy Ratcliffe and his bowing down to the Glazernomics and his 25% I am nonsense. I'm so sick of this saga. Oh really my sick god. Of it. Actually, I was reading some of the forums today and they said um, some of the, the vloggers and bloggers, they're hilarious. You know, it really is funny reading. But because of this delay, there is a chance now that Qatar will come back in. So the state of play, as I understand it, talking right now at 10 past four, Wednesday the 18th, Jim Ratcliffe has a deal in principle to buy 25% of Manchester United's details unbeknown as to how many shares belong to the Glazers, how many belong to our massive financial institutions which own shares in this, and how many belong to the private business owners that own shares in this. So we don't know where the 25% is coming from, but that is the deal in principle that was to be taken to the board on Thursday. Then that meeting was delayed. 
Well, apparently, no. This meeting uh, that was scheduled for tomorrow, it's a bit coincidental when the news broke because this has been penciled in for a couple of months now, this meeting, whatever they're meeting about. Okay, so it's just a board meeting? It's just a board meeting. But they're not sure if they'll actually ratify the... They said it could take a, a couple of months. Apparently, he wants... Another couple of months? Yeah. Apparently, he wants in uh, for the January window. But this... Why is it going to take another couple of months? Because details have to be ironed out. That they couldn't do in the last year? Well, see, this is a new... foot. He came in, like, when he couldn't buy the 51% and the Glazers were dragging their heels. This is a new restructured proposal that he submitted to the Rain Group. This wasn't the original proposal that was arranged by um, Jim Radcliffe. Yeah. This is a restructured to get his foot in the door. Of what? Of his 25% of his... I don't know. I really don't. <laughs> Do you want to be and I've read numerous stories and they said... I just don't get it. It's yeah. the most vexing thing... I have seen Manchester United do and they have done a lot of bullshit things in the past couple of years but this takes the biscuit. So they went out to try and find a potential investor or a potential owner, right? Kept us all on the fish hook with optimism that you would actually sell the club because we can't stand you and we want you gone and you've seen the protests and finally you're going to bow down to some sort of fan power. Give us back our football club in some sense. We're never going to do that. Now the lesser of two evils, I suppose, are morally and ethical playing field was Jim Ratcliffe who I wasn't fussed on I swallowed my morals like the modern fan and I wanted that dirty dirty guitar money I didn't care where it came oh, from I didn't care how it got funneled in I wanted Kylian Mbappe I wanted to see all the stars of the day be linked to Manchester United and just enjoy that that ride fair enough right if I don't get guitar then it goes to Ratcliffe has previous with Nice the previous is terrible I never understood how that was something they were holding up people were saying Oh, but Jim Ratcliffe has owned a football club, so he'll be in the know and he'll know how things are done. Have a look at Nice. Have a look at the state of Nice and what he did to Nice in the years that he has owned it. And then tell me that that is some sort of blueprint for success at a much, much bigger football club. But even if he takes us over, at least it gets the Glazers out and it's 51%. We'll take on Jim and we take our chances. But to find out now that what he's doing is buying up 25% of the club, handing these doom clowns in America... 1.3 billion to buy up we don't even know yet what parts of Manchester United he's buying is he investing in the parts the Glazers don't like is he appeasing the external shareholders that kicked off to them and turned around and said look sell the club are they still staying do they keep all of their shares you know what I mean? as far as I know they own 69% of the club he's buying 25% what 25% is he buying and who's he buying it from is he buying from the Glazers is he buying out the other part of what are we talking there 31% I think it's a bit of both I think it's to appease those investors with the issuers that um, who were going to kick off and sue the Glazers because they wanted the guitar money like everybody else and I think it's there it's very very there's a, a very grey area at the minute nobody is sure what is happening it's all this speculation all the speculation that is going in the past 11 months oh the Qataris have definitely bought it oh the Qataris have put 6 billion down that was all BS yeah nobody knew anything it was 5 billion and they felt that 5 billion was a severe overestimation of yeah. what Manchester were worth in the there was said, a no. non-disclosure how do you feel about Jim and his 25% honestly thoughts feelings initial reaction how do you feel about him taking my 100%? initial reaction when it broke was I was really disappointed 
I wanted the dead cleared. I wanted the guitaris to fly in and their magic harp and just sprinkle dust all over Old Trafford and make everything all right with their loads and loads of money. That's if you take the finances out of it, what do you make of the man and his ability to get the sporting operations of Manchester United back on track, Jim Ratcliffe? Because I tell you one criticism that keeps recurring in some Manchester United fans' minds, and I really, really don't like it, that Murda and Arnold are clients and don't know what they're doing. Based on what? Well, there has been another bit of spec. It's all speculation that um, Richard Arnold's going nowhere. Why should I? And John Murda will be, if they do get a director of football in, John Murda will not be sacked, that he will be moved to another department or... Any Manchester United fans at the time, we're all extremely short-sighted, right? You have to remember that the focal point of our transformation is meant to be our Dutch manager, Eric Ten Hag. And that manager was chosen by John Murray. I mean, United fans seem to have this, I don't know, rose-tinted glasses when they look at certain aspects of Manchester United and what is going wrong. They seem to form their own opinions and ignore certain things that go on at the football club just to feed the rhetoric that it has to be somebody else's fault apart from our failing players and our yet-to-succeed properly manager for what's going wrong. So Murray and Arnold are the new scapegoats. Arnold raises the money in the confines of what he can do. I think he's done a decent job. He structured some brilliant deals, including the highest um, kit sponsor deal of all time with Adidas. Fair play. Kudos. Even the mighty Woodward couldn't get that over the line. Murda championed Eric Ten Hag and chose Eric Ten Hag over Pochettino. Every pundit in their day, all the legacy class in 92, all the boys wanted Mauricio Pochettino to take the role and Murda fought tooth and nail for them to hire Eric Ten Hag because he had met Eric Ten Hag and he believed in the vision. Ten Hag came into Manchester United and then United fought tooth and nail to get him the targets that he wanted. Mistakes were made. They were two lads, Arnold and Murda, who were going through their first transfer window with a brand new manager. Mistakes were made. Ranyak turned out to be a bit of a failing. There were rumours that Ten Hag didn't want to deal with Ranyak, that it wasn't just what Ranyak said about it, but fair play, whatever went on there. So they went out and they got him the players that he wanted. The feelings I'm talking about is probably the overpaying for Anthony. That's the biggest one. But Ten Hag picked him. Ten Hag chose Anthony. We couldn't get Frankie de Jong and we chased Frankie de Jong for an entire summer. That was a mistake. But that was Murda and Arnold acting on the whims and wishes of the manager. So do you want now... And then you come into this transfer window. He wanted Andrea Onana. That's another mistake. But that was the manager's mistake. And they fought tooth and nail to get him every target that he wanted. We all... We're mystified and up in arms when Mason Mount signed for Manchester United. And then you swallowed it. And then he was given the seven and you thought, what the fuck? Even the Mount fans must have thought, what on earth is going through their mind? And then it came out that he was Ten Hag's top boy. That Ten Hag had scouted him, seen him, loved him, wanted him to be the number seven of Manchester United. The manager chose that. Yeah, but see, sorry to interject, but here we go again, Right. What month are we in? October. October. Right. The season's only started a few months. And yet everybody said, oh, Mason Mount, shit, Mason Mount. But what, we overpaid? We overpaid for Harry Maguire. We overpaid for Sancho. We overpaid for a lot of players by different managers. It's the United way. United overpay. That whole structure has to be restructured. I don't think we overpaid in this window. I think our business was more clear and concise this window. I think the mistakes of last season were learnt and United tried to conduct themselves more adequately. 
within a really strict transfer budget enforced on us by our dickhead owners. Hmm. And financial fair play. And financial fair play, which has to be taken into consideration. Yeah. But we could have destroyed the financial fair play confines and restrictions if we had agreed to pay off our debt, which they weren't willing to do. Yeah. And they could have pumped their own finances into the club. They spent $134 million because $134 million was the profit margin that the club as a business could spend. They didn't give us one iota. In fact, they let us flail about at the end. They wouldn't give us the money for Pavard. They wouldn't pay Maguire out of his contract. And they wouldn't engage for the money for the Amrabat deal until players went out the window. Disgusting. So I suppose my biggest... I have two big questions in my head. My initial point. Are Murray and Arnold really the enemy if they're working with the manager to get the manager who he wants? And if we all believe in Eric Ten Hag, then we have to believe in the players that he's signing. And if he makes those mistakes, at least he's the one making them. Because we've all been guilty in the past under Ed Woodward of wondering who was making the transfer signings. Who did sign Di Maria? Who did sign Fellaini? Was that Woodward or was that the manager? Now the dynamic has shifted. Now you've got Murray and Arnold buying the players for the manager. But I'm hearing United fans come and say, oh, Murray and Arnold are the problem and Jim will get rid of them. Rid of them for who? And does Ten Hag want this? And how does that fucking solve anything? Man United fans are, some of them, they're, they're just way too entitled. Oh, we want the best in class. We're the best football team. We're the blah, 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 blah. Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp have made mistakes in the transfer window. Managers do it. All boards do it. They've bought some gems, as have we, over the years. It's just getting that balance right. But my point is, they made those mistakes in players that they chose. The previous criticism of Manchester United was, who chose the transfers? Was it the manager or were we buying players and asked the manager to make them fit? So you can't criticise the United of old and turn around and say, no, that was the wrong way. We should have consulted the manager. The manager should have been part of the process. Then bring in Murdoch and Arnold for two seasons. Let them give the players that the manager wants to the manager and turn around and say, yeah, Murdoch and Arnold are shit, aren't they? They're probably the problem. No, I agree based with on you. What? Because based, based on what? You listened to Louis van Gaal and you listened to Mourinho, who had lists yeah. and did not get who they wanted on that list. And that was down to Woodward. And I'm sure Richard Arnold was his underling at the time was looking at all the mistakes that Ed Woodward made and the budget that he blew entirely. And that's why I agree with you that the three of them have sat down and said, who do you want? Who do you need? That we can fast forward this football, this process, that we need to get back up to some sort of level that Ed Woodward blew an awful lot of money on yokes for commercial reasons. Sanchez. But I think... Who sanctioned that? Alexis Sanchez Ronaldo Ronaldo bring Ren- that was a romantic thing then it's, and Ali didn't have the backbone to turn around and say I don't think this will work he hadn't got the cloud either no but um, on the tactical news I think Ali truly believed that was a fun for Chris I think Ali truly believed that it could work and that the romanticism would throughout well, I'm it would say something very controversial be a brilliant comeback I think Solskjaer would have succeeded if Ronaldo wasn't brought in but Ronaldo, being Ronaldo, being the United board and the fan base as well, to be quite honest, we all were delighted when he came back. Just upset the dynamic of that young... T- I, that, that is just my belief, my opinion. I tell you why I, I don't he think he would. Been. I think it's evident in the conversations I have seen with the senior and legacy players talking about Ten Hag and they've talked about three things in particular. Structure, rules, principle. 
and they talk about them as if they're mystifying concepts that a monitor has come in and, and set down his rules. And there was severe criticisms of Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer that it was like a holiday camp. You know, the boys all get in together and my lads will do what they want and we'll come in and we'll go out onto the pitch and there was no real game plan. My boys know what they're doing and I'll pick 11 players and they'll all give it their all and here we go. That's not the modern game. It's more like the NFL now. You have to be tactically well-drilled. And I think Ten- Eric Ten Hag is. I don't think Ollie would have got it right. There would have been moments. Brilliant, brilliant moments. Yeah, I suppose. Because I think moments. if I could mash together Ollie Connor Solskjaer's, I don't know, like his enthusiasm for it, his charisma, his personality, his passion, and put that into Eric Ten Hag and Eric Ten Hag's tactical mind, I think that's the perfect monitor. No, I think we need Eric Ten Hag's. He was brought in to reset the culture at Man United. Now, the, the management. That was an didn't... interesting thing that he came up with, that he actually came out and said. That must have been a conversation at a very, very high level for him to turn around and say that. I was brought in to reset the culture and to st- stick in strict rules and principles yeah. and thought, did that come from Martin Arnold? Did John Murdoch look at life after Woodward and Ollie and say this is a shit show? No, because I have said it uh, many times that for a long time that the tail wagged the dog at, a dog at that club. That yeah. team, you had people, especially with the social media aspect of it and their PR teams getting onto social media and causing ructions and causing just disquiet among the fan base. Yeah, I think there was too much taken from the players at that point. You had very strong personalities, but the strong personalities were allowed to win. Mm. Eric Ten Hag's not that man. No. You're not going to get away with that. Now, what I'm seeing on the football pitch from Eric Ten Hag needs to improve. Needs to improve massively in the next run of games now after this international break. But I am really happy with the way that he has conducted himself as Manchester United manager. He's been very good in that respect. Well, I will judge Eric Ten Hag when everybody is back fit and fighting. Yeah, and he has, he can pick his first team from the personnel that, you know, he'll have a bigger selection when everybody who's injured is back in training. But is Ratcliffe the answer? Is the big question? Is this deal going to be an improvement or a catastrophe? Because I tell you my honest take on this deal, right? This to me feels like if I was in work, right, and I have a client or a group of people. The Manchester United fans, who don't particularly like me. Now, I am arrogant enough to believe that my end product and what I will deliver at Manchester United is right and is good for the football club. And I'm not as bad as they think I am. So I'm the Glazers in this scenario. So what I do is I look at all the abuse and all the stick that I'm taking. I don't want to sell my business. Why would I? Because I am set for a big windfall in a couple of years, especially if football kicks off and the Saudis get in. So I don't want to lose out that money, but they're really giving me a headache. So what I'll do is, I'll bring in somebody else, a face. He can have 25% off the club, but he's not touching my shirt. He can buy 25% of the shirts of the other headaches that I have on the board and get rid of them. Because he's my guy now. I'm letting him in and he wants in. And he can face off to them now. He can go on TV and tell them that good things are coming and good things are going to happen and we're all pulling together. And I still get all my money and I lose absolutely nothing and they get their bright shiny new face and I look like the boy and nothing changes it just has a new face on it it's like Coca-Cola repackaging the tin yeah but if you have a deal that suits both parties and let's face it Jim Radcliffe did not become a billionaire being stupid Jim Jim Radcliffe 
apparently his personal wealth is 29 billion, right? Apparently, Ineos makes 69 billion every year. That's a phenomenal amount of wealth. But also think about it, right? Manchester United are a commercial and financial juggernaut. Yes. Ineos aren't paying 1.3 billion for United. They're not. They're not paying 1.3 billion to replace the Glazers. They're not paying 1.3 billion to come in and be the saviors. They are paying 1.3 billion because the Glazers have shared their projections for where they think Manchester United will be. If he can create a culture of success at United, keep us in the Champions League, give us that new chairman, that new owner boost, and restructure the finances or let them offload some debt so that it takes it away in January where we can spend two, three hundred million and go out and get players and stuff again. Now, what Jim Ratcliffe gets in return is if the Glazers are right and the club buoys in two years' time towards that massive figurehead of seven, eight, nine billion, well, then his 1.3 looks brilliant in the eyes of Ineos because he's 25% owner. And if it sells for 10 billion pounds, then his 1.3 all of a sudden went for 2.5. So he made 1.2 billion for coming in for two years, restructuring some finances, offloading some debt onto some companies that he owns, putting money in in the same way that the Glazers did without having to spend a penny and walking off into the sunset. A rich old man who made any 1.3 billion. That could be another scenario. That's how it feels to me. Yeah. The it's other... putting a really, really, I don't know, uninspiring face out to the media who's going to give a brilliant interview. Where do you see the interview he gives? It'll be amazing. Yeah, well, I'll come away from it the same way as the, the Joel Glazer flipping letter when I thought, yes, they're going to engage with this new stadium. They realise that we have the power. They realise that they listen to the fans. I really think this is going to be the same shit with a shiny new face to it. Well, just we'll have to see. We will. It'll be interesting to see what he promises. But it's one of the more disheartening things I've seen Manchester, and they've done a lot of crap. But this is one of the more disheartening decisions I've seen United make because I just don't think. Well, the devil's in the details, and we will know in a few weeks what that proposal or that offer entails. Is it the foot in the door? The, the Glazers know that, especially with um, the World Cup now in America in a, in a few years, there will be an awful lot of money generated. There will be an awful lot of interest. Billions. Yeah. Billions. With the new structure of the Champions League and the new the TV deals that are coming in as well. Billions. So if I was a business person, I wouldn't give that up. No, why would I? I would be looking at, for a partner to say, look, you, you put in capital... You can deal with football because we don't have a clue. We don't even, we don't even like it anyway. We don't, we don't like, like it. the fans. Yeah. We don't even like the sport. This was you meant to make money that. and now they're shouting at us. Have at it. It's yours. Yeah. Right? Do whatever you want. But we're staying here because in four years' time, what you're proposing now is going to be twice that much. Yeah. And we want our slice of the cake. Because Daddy was very shrewd and invested in football club that just... Explodes. And makes a lot of money. Yep. But yes, it'll be interesting to see. Very, very interesting. Folks, thanks so much for listening. This is a wee bit off schedule this week, so Family Therapy will be back on Friday where we'll look ahead to the Sheffield United game. Yep. And take in the Sinhag press conference and possibly see what happens with this meeting. We'll have a bit of reaction and stuff to that. Thanks for listening. Give us a wee rating on Spotify or if you're a part of the social media page, drop us your comments, ask some questions, even give us some topics maybe that you'd like us to talk about and we'll take you through them. 
but we'll be back on Friday. Talk to you all then. Bye, everyone.